For the last 13 weeks, we've been undergoing a study in the life of the early church, mostly. And the series we called it, Upon This Rock. For Jesus said, Upon this rock I will build my church. So, the early church in the book of Acts was a prime focus. It was of our primary attention. This last couple of weeks, we've been looking at the worship of the early church as well as the worship of the eternal church in heaven. And we discovered something, didn't we, that of all of the activities of the church, the one that won't cease in heaven will be worship, praise which I think means much more than just singing of songs or reciting of things. It will be something that is a lifestyle absolutely focused on and taken in by God's person so that our response as an ongoing response is that of worship. So tonight we've sort of declared a night of worship. And I'm going to draw your attention to a um, portion of Scripture in Isaiah chapter 6 for just a few minutes before we get back into uh, uh, some more um, congregational involvement in singing. As you're turning to that, I'm going to read you something that I found written by A.W. Tozer. I don't know what you think of Tozer, if you've read him, but if you haven't read him, you need to find his books and read them. Because they're always rich. They're always filled with a conviction of the Holy Spirit, I find. And it's interesting I heard that A.W. Tozer wasn't liked much when he was around. He was considered a little too controversial. It's interesting what happens to you when you die, however. Suddenly you're a hero and people want your books and they want to read them and tell their churches to read them. But while you're alive, you know, they say, oh, he's a loose cannon. You know, we shouldn't have A.W. Tozer. Listen to what he said. Are we losing our O? Or it should be read, are we losing our O? When the heart on its knees moves into the awesome presence and hears with fear and wonder things not lawful to utter, the mind falls flat and words previously its faithful servants become weak and totally incapable of telling what the heart hears and sees. In that awesome moment, the worshiper can only cry, Oh. Are we losing our Oh? I think. Some are. Some aren't. Some are discovering the awe of worshiping the Lord. One of them that has always gotten my attention was the prophet Isaiah. His story in Isaiah chapter 6 is revealing, incredibly revealing. It begins by saying, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple above it stood seraphim each one having six wings with two he covered his face with two he covered his feet and with two he flew now that proportion of those wings is interesting to me i see it this way four of those wings were used in worship and only two were used in service Two were very busy in keeping this creature afloat before God, doing his bidding. But two were used in in God's presence to cover his face and then two more to cover his feet. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy 
is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. Then I said, woe is me. Woe is me, not woe, dude. It's not a surf woe. It's a lamenting, worshiping woe. Woe is me, for I am undone, because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah's response is pretty amazing. Here's a prophet, a faithful man, one who walked with God, one who knew God, and yet, in seeing God in absolute holiness, the prophet sees himself in absolute sinfulness. And I think the only reason that he saw himself in this light is because he saw God for who he is. It's sort of like if you're not wearing a very flattering outfit or you didn't dress up and then suddenly you're in a room filled with people who are dressed to the hilt or you're sitting next to someone in church who's like really decked out and you think, though you wouldn't say it, woe is me. Or you're in a song service and somebody next to you has an an incredible voice and you have a little mousy squeal. And you're thinking, woe is me. Max Lucado said, you don't impress the officials at NASA with your paper airplanes. You don't boast about your crayon sketches in the presence of Picasso. You don't claim equality with Einstein because you can write H2O. Nor do you boast about your own goodness in the presence of the Holy God. That's the idea. In seeing who God really was in absolute holiness and purity, Isaiah got a glimpse of himself in the light of who God was. Job had the same reaction. He said, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes have seen the Lord of hosts, and I abhor myself in dust and ashes. Interesting thing to say, for a man who was called by God the most righteous person who lived at that time on the earth. I abhor myself in dust and ashes. Paul had the same sentiment. He said that God saved him the chiefest of sinners. I don't know about you, but when I read Paul thinking he was the chief, number one sinner, I don't feel all that good about myself. Because if he called himself the chief of sinners, what does that make me? A post-grad in sinning? A PhD, perhaps? Peter had an interesting reaction. He was Mr. Fisherman. He knew the Sea of Galilee like the back of his hand until he realized exactly who he was dealing with in the boat. When that great catch of fish came up and he realized who Jesus was, Peter didn't stand up and say, you know, I'm a pretty amazing guy. He said, Depart from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. Show me a person who can be proud in the presence of God, and I'll show you a person who's never met God. In seeing God and holiness, Isaiah says, Woe is me. I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people with unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. A unique experience, seeing the Lord. 
You're probably not going to visibly see the Lord, though he may give you some kind of a dream or vision or revelation of himself or in a service or even alone by yourself. There might be some great manifestation of the nearness of God. Those are always wonderful times. They are. But it's interesting to me that after having seen the Lord and experiencing this, he didn't think, you know, I'm a special, unique person. I wonder how many other people who are living in my generation have experienced what I've just experienced. Probably no one. I must be special. I must be unique. I'm going to go on Christian television. Of course, they didn't have it back then. But if it was around, maybe he could have thought that. But he didn't. Rather, he was devastated because he saw who the Lord was. There was a man who was raised in a Christian home when he was a child. Now, as he grew up to be a man, he wasn't a Christian. Um, Little Johnny had a mom who loved the Lord with all of her heart. She raised him on Bible verses. He memorized them from a young age. He always wanted to be a sailor. He had dreams of going out to sea. Finally, his mother died when he was a very young teenager. And he went to live with extended family. He didn't get along with them very well, so he ran away from home and joined the British Navy. He was a seaman, sailing the seas, having fun, denying God, swearing up a storm. Yeah, Johnny Newton was his name. He boasted that he could swear for two straight hours and never repeat himself once. That's how many curse words he said he knew. He got involved in the Portuguese slave trade, selling human beings from Africa to the New World. He became a drunk. He became enslaved himself after a period of time. And when he was almost dead and they were shipping him back to England, he remembered the Bible verses that his mother taught him. He cried out to God for forgiveness. He had an experience, he said, on that ship with God in remembering the childhood years, but the fact that God could forgive him even now after all that, it absolutely floored him. He got involved in the church, became a chaplain to the British Parliament, and he wrote a song Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Johnny Newton discovered the holiness of God, the sinfulness of man, and the great forgiveness of a great God who loved him. Amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. Now, some of us could sing that song and quite easily maybe apply it to somebody else. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like you. Or you can think of a few other people you consider a wretch, but myself, a wretch? Well, the story goes on. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it. And he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin is purged. (laughs) That sounds like torture, doesn't it? having a live coal, a burning coal being taken off the altar where it's burning and this angelic being touched the lips of the prophet. But, though it sounds like torture, it was cleansing for the very thing Isaiah identified as a problem in his life. 
Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. I have a filthy mouth. I dwell in the midst of a generation of people that have filthy mouths. So the touching of the lips with the coal from the altar speaks of cleansing. Listen, in the temple in Jerusalem, there were two altars. An outer altar, and let's call one an inner altar. The outer altar is where sacrifices were conducted for our sins. The inner altar was called the altar of incense, where the prayers of the nation of Israel ascended to God. It was symbolic of the prayers of God's people. Before a priest could enter into that holy place where the altar of adoration was, he had to stop at that outer altar where his sins would be taken care of. Forgiveness. That's the coals we're talking about. The coals from off that altar came and touched his lips because before he could enter into that place of service, he had to first stop at the altar of sacrifice. And so he had his lips touched with it. Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin is purged. Now there's a lesson there. When we come into God's presence, and I think every time we do, we pause and we say, Lord, cleanse me, forgive me. And you might want to think of one or two or three things that typify your day that you need to confess to the Lord. And you ask him to forgive you. And then you enter in to this place of worship, knowing that your sins are forgiven. You should never leave God's presence once there saying, woe is me. He didn't, he didn't stay in that condition. He didn't say, mea culpa, mea culpa, or woe is me, woe is me. But, but he walks out cleansed. So we should never leave a time of worship, a setting like this, saying, woe is me, I'm such a creep, but I'm a forgiven creep. Oh, I may have blown it today, this week, but my lips have been cleansed, my iniquity has been taken away. And I heard a voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And then I, Isaiah, said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and tell this people. After seeing something and hearing something and feeling something, Isaiah is now going to be doing something. He saw the Lord. He heard the praise of the angels and the doorpost shake. He felt the coal that was hot upon his lips, cleansing him of being a filthy mouth. And now he volunteers for service. Let me put it to you this way. His upreach motivated him to outreach. And so that's why we have that vision statement. Upreach, inreach, outreach. Upreach, worship, connection, heavenward, vertical, God, worship. And then we get changed in God's presence. And some of that change comes from inreach as we minister with each other, as we study the Bible together. But the end result is that we become cleansed and therefore qualified to go reach out to a lost world. Somebody once said, if your religion has not changed you, then it's time for you to change your religion. So being in the presence of God at times of worship should so utterly change us where we realize I am forgiven. I am also called and qualified to go tell others the message from the Lord. So here is Isaiah's worship. He discovers the O of God. God's in this place. He encounters God. 
He sees something. He hears something. He feels something. And then he didn't say, hey, Lord, that was a great vision. Can't wait till next week. Hope you have another one for me. But rather, here I am, Lord, send me. So I see this, this time tonight, every week when we gather on Sundays, as a time where the Lord trains us, changes us, deals with us, and prepares us in our upreach to go do outreach. Where we move from worship vertically toward work horizontally. Because I submit to you that work horizontally is part of our worship to God vertically. We serve God's people because we're serving the Lord. We love God's people because we love Him. It's all part and parcel of a worship relationship with Him. We're going to um, just pause for a few moments and kind of silent adoration. Holland's going to lead us in a song and we can reflect to the Lord our our worship in the song. And then what we're going to do, I'll explain in a moment, is work our way through a template that the Lord gave us in the Lord's Prayer together. But let's sing first. And I'll sing in awe of you.
Disciples asked Jesus to teach them to pray. He said, when you pray, say, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed or hallowed or holy or unique is your name. So that the first part of that is a recognition of who it is you're talking to. He is God, but He is Father. So there's a relationship of intimacy. Our Father. It's a recognition of where He is. He is in heaven. Though you could say He is omnipresent, and He is. You could say He's on the earth, and He is. He's everywhere present at once, at all times. He is uniquely our Father in heaven, which gives Him a vantage point that we don't have. He can see much clearer and much better into the situation being who He is from where He sees than we can here on the earth. Hallowed be Your name. Holy, unique, separate. Awesome is Your name. So it's a declaration of God's attributes. For the next few moments, we're going to pray corporately. And there may be an attribute of God that really has struck you that you want to acknowledge who God is in this. You want to make a declaration of God as a unique one, as an all-powerful one. Some attribute of God's character, or maybe a scripture verse that describes who God is that you'd want to share out loud with us. Here's the only ground rule. It's from your heart. It's adoration to the Lord. You're acknowledging an attribute. We're hearing it and we're understanding, well, that's something that person recognizes as very, very crucial and important to him or her. We want you to do it loud enough so that everyone in the room can hear you. Now, that can be tough for some, but I'm going to ask you to project. You say, well, you're, you're cheating. You have a microphone. Well, now I don't. So let's just spend a few moments together in prayer. Lord, you are all of these things and more to your children. You've heard and you hear the heart cries of your people under your authority your submission as God and as king as potentate of the universe but ever more comforting to us is the knowledge that you are a heavenly father and you call us your children and your friends and you desire intimacy closeness you desire to give refreshment to us. And so in coming to your presence, we acknowledge these things about your character. And we pray that we would grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, so that we would personally experience these attributes of your character in a very real way. Hallelujah. Then when Jesus taught his disciples... He said, when you pray, say, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. 
Your kingdom come, your will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Now that's the realm of personal petition. We want the Lord to reign in our hearts, that his will would be done in earth. And I think it first means, Lord, may your will be done in the part of the earth that I occupy. That my life would be one that lives by your will, spreads your will, is keyed into obeying your will. And then asking God for daily provision. So, as we just sort of provide an atmosphere of worship and quiet for you, I'm going to ask you to turn around and find a friend or two or three and to just pray. I'll tell you a few things you can pray for. You can pray for our troops, that God would provide for them, that his will would be done in that country, in the countries that we occupy, the wars that we're fighting. You could pray for those who are traveling to Israel. Some are leaving Friday. Some of us are leaving Monday, different times. Pray that God would keep them safe and bring them back to us safely. And pray for whatever else the Lord might lay on your heart to pray for personally or for somebody else. So take just a few minutes now and just have your own little prayer meeting and then we'll come back together and worship.
Jesus, in that same instructive prayer, told us that we're to tell the Father, asking Him to forgive us our debts, as we determine in our hearts to forgive those who've sinned against us, those who are debtors to us. And lead us not into temptation. Because part of asking God to forgive us our sins is to acknowledge that we can easily fall into temptation. And the idea is, keep me from being in a temptable place to 